Consent Chasers. Hello and welcome back to Consent Chasers. Hello. Well, The Bachelor took a weird turn. (laughs) (laughs) I don't even know how to describe the type of turn it took. You know, it's... It's not surprising. Like, one thing that I've been really struck by this whole time that I've been watching this is how I really don't find much of anything that happens surprising because it all feels like it fits the same program. You know? Like, you put The the Bachelor through this algorithm that we live in and then you just like plop a black dude in it. That's so dismissive. <laughs> and to think that no work had to be done um, to prepare for that. This is something that I feel, and maybe we mentioned this last time, but it's something that I feel constantly as a black woman navigating this world. Oftentimes there is a push for diversity, a huge push for diversity for the optics of it. And then you finally get the diversity that you want and you realize the work hasn't been done to make this space safe for a diverse group. We haven't addressed the fragility. We haven't addressed the anti-blackness that exists, which is ultimately what we're seeing before our eyes here, especially in the finale. Like you add, like you said, you add a black man into this algorithm and you realize, oh, we have problems here that are charged racially that we couldn't even begin to unpack because we haven't even acknowledged that they exist. Because the algorithm itself is racist. A hundred percent. I'm wondering actually if maybe it's more like the algorithm or there's like a macro algorithm, which is this country and reality television as a reflection of this country. And then there's the algorithm of the bachelor. When you put Matt James in the algorithm of the bachelor, this is what happens. Absolutely. And I think, and it's, again, this is a biracial black man as well, right? Navigating his identity. Also, when we get to the finale, the after the rose ceremony, which we will, uh, the, the statement of, so when you, when you joined this show, did you think these pictures were going to come out? And when Rachel responded, I didn't even think of these pictures because I didn't even realize I did something wrong. It was just photos of my friends, which I think is a reflection of the world. So again, we're seeing, (laughs) we're seeing the world happening before our eyes on a show that's meant to be entertaining. I think I, I was not expecting to have the types of conversations we're having about this show, all about the bachelor. Like, Definitely not when you proposed the idea of this podcast to me. Oh, no, we, we would, I didn't think we were going to be navigating. I should have actually, I should have known that we would be navigating something. We were talking about consent from a relationship standpoint, but now we're looking at consent through the lens of like gender dynamics, the lens of racial dynamics. Yeah. It became a lot bigger than Either of us were expecting. So, of course, the thing I tried to describe this feeling to you when I was, when we were really stoned at your house. And 
it was something about like the feeling of having a mirror in front of you and a mirror behind you and that there's this like bouncing effect and i was when we were watching after the rose together after the final rose i felt like reality tv was the mirror in front of me and real life was the mirror behind me and i was sort of trapped in between this like in this in between space where reality television has become I still can't even quite explain it. Reality television is where real people perform the roles that they've seen on fictional television and in movies for an audience that believes, because they're told this, that what's happening is real. And so then we, the audience, behave like how we witness these people behave. So I'm I'm feeling this like really bizarre it almost feels like a singularity of sorts where fictional television and movies became our reality by way of reality television. Yeah, I can't quite like it, I can't quite put my finger on it, but it's this really like I feel like I'm in the mirror house in the at the circus absolutely i i do think that there is this um strange reckoning of the role you're playing on a television show and the world around you judging the world around you finding out information about your life as you do yes having to make and then feeling like you have to make decisions based on the opinions of the entire world. There's an element of spectacle to this. It's like after the show ended, it really didn't end. They were still on display. Yeah, because they were all over the news. I think there's, yeah, and I think there's something very interesting about having a after the rose a year later. Was it a year? Really? No, maybe it's not a year later. I don't know if it's a year, but it's a significant amount of time. I mean, they have to film it, edit right. it, put the show up. I don't know exactly when they filmed, but time has passed. They were in a relationship. Yeah. And we'll get to all of that. But um, it's, I think the over, overall to be able to discuss, like, when did they stop playing that role? Yes. I've been wondering that myself. We've, t- we've talked about this a little bit, like, the stakes of the so the power dynamics that are built into the structure of this show where there's a bunch of it's you know it's it's capitalism it's love through capitalism so there's a ton of women and there's one guy and they're all vying for this guy's attention and the power dynamics of that i can to me seem insurmountable because what do you do when it's finally just the two of you and you have been putting on an act of being the most perfect human version of yourself possible? Um, and then all of a sudden it's just the two of you like alone in your life and no one's watching and you're not performing for anybody and, and the flaws come out. How does she ever feel like she can be an equal to him? because of the nature of this show. So how do you move from the premise of the show out into the real world? I don't know. I know. I don't have an answer. I don't know. I would love to talk to this. I would love to talk. How do you? It's my question. I mean, I would love to talk to a, a successful yes. bachelor marriage. It'd be so interesting to understand 
where, you know, I think there was one, I remember watching a, a, a season a long time ago, Trisha and Ryan, I want to say. Maybe that season, that's the first season of The Bachelorette. Okay. I don't know if it was, yeah. And they were, you were rooting for them. And I, I believe they're still together, but that's also an early version of the show. This is now a machine. Mm-hmm. It's a whole bachelor nation. Yeah. They, they, they branded themselves in this way and they are expecting content. Right. They're expecting a specific type of content. They're, spe- they're expecting a formula that they're used to. I've heard from many bachelor fans that this was not the season they wanted mm. it to be. Like they weren't, they didn't get the things they wanted to get out of this season. Right. And I wonder, I wonder what it is. I, I feel like this season was necessary. It was educational. Oh yeah. Yes. It, I mean, it has really shown us to ourselves in a way that I don't think has really happened on The Bachelor before. I think we should dive into um, the episodes okay. now. I really, I would love to discuss um, the conversation that Matt had with his yeah. father. Yeah, that was a really very challenging conversation. There was a moment where I was like, ooh, just spare yourself, Matt. And then his father really kind of turned it around. I think he yeah. did. But I think what Matt, uh, and this is just from the outside perspective and maybe also what editing wants me to see. Right. Right. At the end of the day, we are watching this through the lens of the editors and the mm-hmm. producers. What I saw was Matt recognize something within his father in himself. Yeah. And I, what I saw was him change his mind about how he wanted to proceed. Mm-hmm. Initially, up until that episode, he'd been talking about wanting to wanting to leave here with a mm-hmm. wife. And after the f- conversation with his father and his mother, when his mom said love fades, like he was shook. So I'm, I'm interested in like, were these conversations you just never would have had, you never would have had prior to the show? Is the show, was the show the catalyst for you to have these discoveries? And if so, what does that mean for your emotional health, strength, stability. What does that mean for Matt? You could tell he's going through it. You see a completely different person. He was so excited to bring his, his, to to bring both Michelle and Rachel to meet Mm -hmm. his mom. And then the after conversation that he had, you could see him fall apart. Um, I, I wonder if this trauma or these fears or something that was necessary for him to address and get in order to even get to this stage. But because he had hadn't faced them yet, he fully thought that he was going to leave here. Right. He didn't realize there were going to be things. I think it also humanized his father to him. He realized, oh, my dad isn't maybe a terrible person. This can actually happen to anyone. You have mm-hmm. to make the right decision. And am I really sure of this? You're right. It really was kind of a turning point. Hearing you describe it as causing such a shift, I'm like, reevaluating what I saw a little bit. I think you're right. It was like it, it shook the foundation underneath him and he really took a new approach. He had new information about his father and was able to apply that to himself. And in forgiving or kind of working through that dynamic, he realized I may not know myself fully. Mm. 
I may not know what I want yet. I thought I wanted this, but also then seeing his mom, he was like, I don't want to do this to another person. I don't don't want to be the the causer Mm -hmm. of this pain. It's interesting how, how, um, these, these shows find a way to elicit vulnerability out of people. And you know that going in, but maybe you don't realize how fully, how fully transformed you'll become from these experiences. Yeah. Part of it is like, can you go ahead? I was going to say, can you even give consent to be on a show? I just was going to say, like, this is the whole thing about, um, eliminating surprises. Like you cannot possibly like the only way that this show could be happening anything that would even be considered consensually would be if like literally every day they were like matt how do you feel about doing this today like that's literally the only way because you cannot know ahead of time what's going to come up for you in something like this and you know that they're pushing like i was just as you were talking i was thinking about the coercion involved in like you know, what if Matt didn't want to have this conversation with his dad? And the producers were like, dude, you really, really should because it'll be really good for the ratings. You know, like think about, I'm thinking about all the things like, like how he didn't, how he canceled his date with Rachel. Like the Matt that we've been shown throughout this series would not have done that without speaking to her and without giving her any explanation. And so I got really suspicious at that point of the producers. Like, did you guys tell Matt that you would deliver information that you didn't deliver? Or did you tell him that he could not speak to her because it would be good drama? It's actually hard because you want to give them the benefit of the doubt. You don't want to judge them based on the edit that we saw. However, taking these things at face value and discussing them, I think has merit as well. Just seeing like from, from what Michelle told us in the, after the rose ceremony, we see a shift in Matt, but we watched it Mm -hmm. happen. Michelle has not seen this shift goes on a date and Matt is acting normal at the top. Again, this is where I'm wondering at what point were you playing? Right. Right, because Ra- Matt knew like, that he wanted Rachel like before he went on that date with Michelle, and he, we I, assume, you could yeah. see it. You could see it from from several episodes prior that that there was something different about his experience with Rachel. You know, you and I were like pulling our hair out because we were like, "This cannot be the way that this goes." Um, just given all the news about Rachel, but yeah. Had we not had that information, mm-hmm. though, had we not had that information, would we remember there was even speculation as to why Chris stood up for Rachel in the way that he did? Well, that was that the speculation was that he did that because that's who Matt chose. Yeah, and he was <laughs> because he hadn't unpacked his own whiteness. He thought he was doing something right. Right. He thought he was. Yeah. Uh, but uh, to get not to get not to get fully distracted from the topic at hand, uh, Michelle also experiences a surprise. Mm-hmm. We see Michelle's nervous system react to the information that Matt gives her in a way that we've never seen Michelle break down. I mean, when she slid down that door. Mm-hmm. And just crumbled. I felt it. I felt it really deeply. 
And, and then you remember, these are people's lives. These are people's lives and their actual hearts. We're, it's, not a, it's not a character in a, in a TV show that you like. This is a human being that's being put through these situations and scenarios willingly, right? They gave consent. Yeah, but that's this whole thing that I want to like pull away at, which is that consent is way more than permission. And we use the words interchangeably all the time. Like, did you get consent? Or I gave you consent? Or I only did that with your consent? No, you did that with my permission. I gave you permission. Consent is a practice. It's an ongoing thing. It's a way of listening. It's a way of checking in. It's a way of existing. It is basically a belief structure. Consent for me is spiritual. It is my religion. It is my doctrine. It's like, it's how I live my life. It's how I move through the world. And it's not something that you can give and get in an instant. So it doesn't have to be all of that to anybody else. I mean, I realize that's like, that's a lot. But consent is not permission. They are not the same thing. So you can, yes, you can give permission when you agree to join this show. But consent is not occurring. Consent is not happening. Mm. Permission was given. Permission was given. Consent is not occurring. Right. I've been in relationships where that's happened. Where, like, I gave you permission, but consent was not happening. Like, consent was not happening in an ongoing way, despite the fact that I gave you permission to do certain things. All right. So there's this quote from Rachel that floored me because it was hard for me to believe that it wasn't scripted. Not that I actually think that someone gave her these words, but that she is pulling them from some platonic script that exists on a metaphysical plane where she's like, this is what I'm supposed to say right now. She says, I know how I feel about him. I know that I love him. I know that this is love because I don't feel like I can live without him. It's like a song lyric. That's great. It's amazing that you bring that up because I think that's what has shaped this idea that that's the type of love we're supposed to be looking for. It's media that we consume. It's all the rom-coms we grew up watching. It's every Miley Cyrus song. Even all the... Yeah, every children's song we grew up mm. listening to um, or every children's TV show we grew up watching, right? Like it's it's woven into everything at every stage of our lives. So I'm wondering now with the conversations that we have, with the ability to talk about consent as opposed to permission, with the insights that we have, I hope that there will, we will have a more real, like a more healthy relationship to romance because this may sound romantic to people this sounds like a nicholas sparks movie right like when someone says i can't breathe without you that sounds oh she's so yeah, you're the only love. one for me I've however never, i can't imagine my life without you also saying that she's never been in love yes. before it's like if i think we're recognizing it because either we've a person i'll speak for myself I have felt that way before, and it was not a precursor to something. I have had similar experiences. Yeah, that feeling to me now serves as information that my anxious attachment style has been triggered somehow, has been activated. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. If I'm starting to have that feeling, I now use it as a red flag. But I've been taught my whole life that it's a good thing and that it means that I should try to make this relationship work. You know, it's very interesting because I remember being 24, 25, and for the first time being outside of like my my high school sweetheart, for the first time feeling it in my adult life, that type of love where it's codependent. It is a, I cannot exist without you. It is a, I can't breathe without you. I literally had butterflies in my stomach for six months at the thought of us falling apart because I could sense it. My body was responding in this way that made me feel like I needed this other person in order to exist. I had attached myself to them in an unhealthy way. I know this. And after the fact, after I left that relationship, because it was probably the most tumultuous I'd ever been in. And also very similarly to this happened rather rapidly. Yeah. That's so often the case. Afterwards, when I tried to navigate for afterwards, the breakup of that relationship almost demolished Mm me. I had to relocate. I moved to Los Angeles immediately after this breakup. And so I feel, and then also I feel like it affected my ability to, to sense whether or not I was in love with someone else. It wasn't until I started doing the work to truly understand myself, to understand consent and boundaries, to, to recognize what my attachment style was, to see what love genuinely feels like in a healthy way. It's, if I was still using that as a, as a measurement of whether or not I really loved someone, because her, her exact quote is, I know I really love him because I, yeah. it's, I don't think that's the, that's the trap we all get ourselves into. We sabotage other relationships that may be healthier because we're thinking, oh, I don't feel all those feelings right, that I... Right, And that's also, you know, that's like when his mom says that love fades, that's kind of what she's talking about, that like the codependency is not sustainable. I was thinking about this recently. I think we talked about it a little bit that I was just, I was trying to sort of like you use this idea of, co- I was looking for like codependent reasons for codependency. I understand that codependency uh, it's, it's like a drug. I mean, it makes sense that there's a 12 step program for it because what you're chasing is the dopamine hit, the adrenaline, the oxytocin. Um, you get addicted to that and that comes in really fast, frequent and high doses in a very codependent relationship. Um, I was wondering like, why is it, there has to be a reason that we're being like sold this everywhere. Like, is it profitable? Like what's going on? And I came to the conclusion, or, you know, at least this is where I'm at right now, which is that it's a really successful evolutionary survival trait. It's really good for two people to make babies super fast and frequently. If we're talking about a world before birth control, a world where people mostly lived until they were 35 and had babies at 14 or younger. So... I've just been I've just been thinking about like what is what would that mean if codependency is actually like an outdated like a a vestigial evolutionary trait that we don't need anymore. I think that would lead into more um what I would say it would lead into is more open relationships, more polyamory yeah. and like a deeper understanding of these things. I know that there will always be people who who think or who feel as though monogamy is sacred and should be honored. And 
I believe there are healthy ways to be monogamous. Codependency is not one of them. And I don't believe that this show is... In fact, actually, Mia, I would love for you to talk about the difference between codependency and interdependence. Sure. I think that is something that I didn't know prior and I do think is like a great distinction. Yeah. Well, I have people in my life who who understand the concept of interdependence much more deeply than I do. But from my perspective, from what I've seen and from the information that I've gathered, a major difference between codependence and interdependence is consent. So codependency is when we're basically relying on someone else for our identity, to like know who we are, to have purpose, to have meaning. And so we want them to rely on us. We want to feel useful and we want to be able to rely on them. And so we manipulate our way into that dynamic uh, by not being clear about what we want, by not being clear about what we need, by maybe not knowing in the first place, you know, all these things. Interdependence is about the ways that we consensually agree to rely on each other. It's a community-based concept. Um, so the like the way that I rely on um, my doctor and that's consensual. I pay him and he provides a service. Um, you know, I can rely on my mom for emotional support and that's something that she wants to provide. Yeah. From, from where I'm sitting, you know, interdependence is, is reliance that's based on consent that we're like all involved in this. Um, and no one's being pushed past their capacity. No one's, you know, what I see in this show is codependence and interdependence is not something that the show seems to even be aware of as a concept. I don't believe so. And even myself, I'm still trying to navigate what the difference is and how to embody yeah. that difference. Um, and I think it, it, it comes down to communication. Absolutely. You cannot, you cannot find yourself in a situation where you're not codependent. If you are, if you are unwilling to have those conversations, right. Right. You'll end up in a codependent relationship. So long as you're people pleasing, uh, trying to guess how people feel about you, um, you know, project, making assumptions about what they think, um, expecting them to read your mind. That's like a big sign of codependence, um, codependency that all that stuff is dangerous. If, is it possible? Do you think to be in a codependent relationship, recognize it, reconcile, and repair? Is it possible to shift the dynamic of a relationship? Or is it because I'm asking in the frame of 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 this, because Rachel and Matt are have Rachel is clearly in a codependent dynamic with him. She stated it. Is there a way? Do we know? I think a lot of people find themselves going to therapy right about when the luster of the codependent relationship wears off because you're no longer getting your fix of all those yummy hormones. I think I think very often, you know, that's like two, three years in where people either split up or go to or get married and go to therapy together. I think people can do it. I think it's really hard. And I really hope that I, you know, I would really, my hope is that when I enter into a new relationship, 
that I really care about, that I'll be able to prevent it from becoming codependent right off the bat. There's something about the way that I said that that I don't like preventing it from becoming codependent. I, I don't know. Let's see about that. I think, or what I, t- what I took from that was vulnerability mm-hmm. and honesty. I, I think that that statement sounded as if you'd had codependent relationships in the past, learned from it and are recognizing traps yeah. now for that's for what that's worth. Also myself uh, navigating my own relationship. I'm wondering how I, I know early on it was much more codependent mm-hmm. and once communication increased and the conversations that needed to happen, happen, there's, I felt like there was a turning point. It was either we have these conversations now and address these things that could potentially end our relationship. We address them and, and, and either we decide one way or the other, or you ignore it and find yourself in a, in a dynamic that isn't helpful. And, and then a messy breakup afterwards, which I personally don't feel like in this stage of my life, I can handle another. You know, I don't know that they will keep happening to you. Like, I, I think that with with all everything you just listed where you're like, you know, I'm aware of my attachment style. I'm learning about consent and boundaries and all this stuff. Like, you simply cannot have the same breakups that you used to have. You cannot have the same relationships you used to have. You are a changed person with this information. It also It also means that you can't be in a relationship with just anyone anymore. Yes. You have to find one with someone who is a willing to do the work um, or has already done it. That's really, that's a really beautiful point. Yeah. Can you repair and restore? And that's where we're at with Rachel and that. I mean, he was so heartbroken. Like that was the part that when we were watching after the, after the final rose ceremony, I, I mean, I was, I was into, like, I was a mess. I, I couldn't believe what I was witnessing. And I think, I think the tears were like about their heartache because I am like, I am such a sucker for romance. I cry every time I watch Romeo and Juliet and I just watched them like in so much pain with their hearts broken. It was so hard for them to have to discuss it. You could tell that they, that it was still fresh. Matt's Matt brought up the fact that he's like, I am learning this information at the same time the world is. Yeah. Yeah. Can you imagine sitting next to your partner and seeing something that harmful pop up on your phone and then, and then have to have the conversation with them about why what they did was wrong because as Rachel has stated, she was not aware that she had done anything. Right. So Matt having to explain to her why that was wrong. And then saying that that was a reason why he could not be with her anymore. It's like, I know she will never understand. Was that something you didn't think about before? Here's the, here's the, this dynamic or this, this happens so frequently in relationships because we don't talk about identity and race. I found myself in many t- in many situations and currently with a white partner, I find myself having to have conversations in this of this nature being like, this is harmful. This is hurtful mm-hmm. to me. I know you don't know it, but then at whose expense is that? This is at, this is at Matt's expense in public on a grand arena. I, my heart goes out to him and I don't know what it would take from Rachel for anyone to feel good about 
about her. And I don't know that it's up to me to feel good about it. Even, even the host was kind of saying, are you saying there's really nothing she can do to fix this? Like the host was kind of on and And I was, I was a little confused. I was too. I think he was approaching it from a restorative justice stance. I don't know. I, I'm not sure because I feel like if he were approaching it from a, a, a transformative justice standpoint, he would have said, we are all racist. We all exist in a racist society. We were all raised in a racist society. So we are all racist. And he, and he said something like, you're not racist. He made some statement about like not being racist. That like we weren't accusing her of being racist or something. I wish I could remember exactly what, have- what he said. Yeah. I, uh, also, I'm not sure I entirely agree with the statement that we are all racist. What I mean to say is that we all have prejudice and biases and some carry more weight than others. And I, I feel as though ah, the definition of racism that I like to, that I like to stick to personally, because it is helpful to distinct, uh, to dis- dis- distinguish the two for me is um, racism being prejudice plus the power. I see. Yeah. In the situ- in the scenario, in the scenario, Matt doesn't possess the power because of his identity. Rachel does. Rachel's actions are those actions were racist. They were harmful. Ra- whether or not Ra- Rachel knew that they were harmful in the moment does not exonerate her from what she did. It's like when you hit someone with your vehicle, whether or not it was a mistake, you hit someone with your you're vehicle. still you are still accountable for that, right? Which is a terrible situation to find yourself in. And I, then Rachel's the, the Matro does not make it anyone else's fault, which is what I'm grateful for. Rachel said, it's no one else's job to educate me. It's no one else's job for me. To, like that information was out there and I, I just didn't value it enough to seek it, which is something that I don't feel like I hear white people say yeah. frequently. And I'm grateful to hear it that way. I'm grateful that she said that on television mm-hmm. in that manner. And I know a lot of people don't didn't agree with that statement. However, it is true. It's, it is true. What Matt decides to do with that information is on Matt. But it did, it did seem like everyone was operating with different definitions of everything and, and different ideas of how the show should end. Also, was the host encouraged by producers to create an environment where they, where they resolve it on television? Right. Was that the hope? Was that the end goal? I have a question. Well, I have a question oh, ahead, for you around your distinction. My my dis- my distinction around saying like that we're all racist because we grew up in a racist society is the difference between being not racist versus anti-racist. Because, ah, because we yes, all yes. grow up consuming media that tells us that there is a hierarchy of people, you know, of like how we hierarchize people. Um, And that, so my question for you is around this idea that like we all perpetuate white supremacy. So that's, do you think that that's different from, from saying that someone is not racist. I feel as though I have been able 
to perpetuate white supremacy. I have perpetuated white supremacy before I took the time to understand my identity, learn about what anti-blackness was. Because black people can be anti-black mm-hmm. as well. You can embody that within it because it's you're consuming it everywhere, right? If you're not actively unlearning and and reprogramming yourself, then you are a part of the problem, right? So I, I, I yes, I, I see what you're, okay. I would say that I have perpetuated white supremacy. I actively am trying to not do that anymore. I would not say that I have been racist. I, I would say I prejudice and hold lots of implicit biases that I need to check mm. myself on. But I don't actually possess the power for those, um, for my, for my prejudice to alter the way white people look at life. Wow. Okay, that's a really really beautiful distinction that distinction i learned what while reading white fragility and i don't know that that's um i'm sorry i'm forgetting the name of robin d'angelo i don't know that that's robin d'angelo that robin d'angelo invented that definition however she had it listed i remember that from that book as well and i i know i remember what you're talking about she talks about how um Black people can't be racist because of all the reasons that you just explained. I think, I think she's also, I think she's talking about the concept of reverse racism. She's trying to debunk the concept of reverse racism. Reverse racism. Yeah. Which is what people have been using uh, right now towards being like, this is reverse racism towards Rachel, which makes no sense to me. And I think that, I think that by, What's happening is by saying everyone is racist is not allowing white people to understand the gravity of their racism versus yes. prejudice from other yes, that's- groups, which is why I like the distinction. Not everyone agrees with that distinction. And I, and I recognize that and I acknowledge it. For me, it's been transformative in how I view the world and that I'm able to recognize, call things out when I see it. Did you recognize those moments of absolute silence on television and how everyone handled mm, it. I tell me more would ask Matt a question and we'd watch Matt struggle to answer. We'd, uh, we'd watch Rachel silently trying to help, trying to make eye contact, taking his or trying hand. to taking his hand. He was speaking oh. at that point. But others were, oh, no, 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 you're right. I yes, he, he was thinking whenever he really was. hard. That's right. That's right. He was really taking a t- his time. I remember, yeah. There was a moment where Matt just couldn't respond at all. And the host goes, wow, under his That's breath. right. And you could just see. That. And then they ended up going to a commercial break fairly soon after. But, like, to be a fly on the wall during that commercial break. Whoa. What? happened what did they do how did they navigate that also i think that was a moment where we realized where matt realized just how much of a character he was as well Mm. he's playing a character in in like for other people this is a this is a character they're watching on tv this is matt's life and he he's having to go through all of this pain and emotion of realizing the weight of the decision that he made. He gave permission. Yeah. He gave permission, right? And then recognizing the, the levels, 
he, there was no way he knew how deep this was going to get. Do you remember get. the first, like on the first episode, his conversation with Chris Harrison, where you and I were texting, and I was like, "Do you think that this that Chris has any idea?" And you were like, mm, 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 mm. "I was shaking my head." You laughed at me because of the reaction yeah. I had. Yeah, but thinking about that conversation now, the way that it was like. He knew what was at stake, but he could not have known what was at stake. Like he could not have known. I think this is a ser- this is a season that will be talked about for years yeah. to come. Like this was a definition of our times. What's happening to Matt and Rachel is something that has happened to numerous interracial relationships. It's happening all over the world, especially in this time. And this time where we're breaching kind of the surface of these sort of conversations and really trying to understand what it means to be any race in this nation. Like you said, they could not have predicted this. I wonder what this is going to mean for Matt and what this is going to mean for Rachel. Matt said he had to step aside in order for Rachel mm-hmm. to do the work. Do you think they'll get back together? Well, I heard a rumor that they've been photographed in New York City together. Would that be surprising to you? Um, well, the rumor was that they've been photographed in New York City together and that Matt is dating other people. Would it be surprising to me? It would be. It would be surprising to me if, like, after all of this, Matt thought that Rachel was at a point six months later where he could really see himself with her. He does seem like a very patient human being. Do you think there's more that Rachel could be doing? That's, ugh, that's like the endless question. Like, there's always more that you can be doing, you know? Like, but you also have to, like, eat, sleep, shit, and fuck. Or, like, you have to still go to work or whatever. Like, you could always be reading more, taking a class, watching something. Like, you can always be doing more, and that's sort of the endless guilt cycle But I just can't imagine a world in which, like, a few months go by and Rachel understands, yeah, is, like, suddenly able to comprehend, you know, like, that that stuff really does take time. It actually takes time to, like, and I, I mean, I'm, even I can hear in the way that I'm saying this, it's, like, it's giving an inaccurate picture, like, I, I learn my lessons about how I'm acting like a white lady or, you know, ways that I'm harming the people of color in my life. I learn those lessons over and over and over again. It's not like a one and done. I read a book and now I know how to treat people. I also, it's, it's my belief that it's, that this stuff fractals, that it's like the, the limit does not exist math equation where it's like, you can really quickly, if you've never paid attention to if you're a white person and you've never paid attention to like the ways that you perpetuate racism, you can very quickly get significantly more aware, but then it starts to the, you know, the, what's that called? Like the velocity or whatever, like it, it starts to slow down and you can get closer and closer and closer to zero, but I don't ever think that I'm going to stop fucking up when it comes to race. I think I will get better and better 
but I don't think that I can ever stop. And that is something that makes me so sad. I mean, I've, I'm certain that I've lost relationships over it and that there are relationships that I will not have because of that. I've had to really come to terms with that throughout my life and like, especially quickly over this last year. So it's definitely not something that can happen in like a few months if it's something that can ever happen. I don't think there's going to be a way to ensure safety, emotional safety in an interracial dynamic for the person of color in that dynamic if the other is white. Unless, no, there won't be ever a way of ensuring safety. You can't ensure Mm -hmm. it. You can't guarantee it. I think it takes two people who are willing to to work together, two people who are very patient and willing to understand and listen empathetically. Yeah. And then ultimately I think at the end of the day, it's up to the, it's up to the BIPOC in that scenario to decide whether or not they can take that on. They have to know themselves enough. I think what Matt was trying to say is, is I recognize that I actually could not do this. I don't think he, I don't know that he thought about it, that he didn't bring it up, at least on the show that she's, that she's white or at least white passing what that he didn't acknowledge or have this conversation. What is that going to mean with me? He said it briefly in the beginning, the first episode where it's like, I may or may not find myself in a relationship with a white woman or like, or, or no, actually what he said was that I know that I'm a black man on the show and I feel like people want me to end up with a very specific right. partner. He was saying, I feel like people are expecting me to end up with a black woman. And I wonder if that's why he, I know that he had, he actually genuinely had a connection with Michelle but I'm wondering if that's why he kept Michelle on as long as he did. So what do you think about when people, cause I feel like this ties into the rom-com thing with everything that you just said about the work that it takes and the patience that it requires when someone says something like, but love conquers all love fades mm. in the wise words of Matt James's mother. Love fades. It does. It lo- Loving someone can be, in a lot of ways, a reason why someone is willing to examine themselves. How many times have I been able to have the conversations about race and identity with, with white people who maybe weren't willing to hear it prior because I had a stake in their life, because they were invested in me and had a relationship with me and cared? That I have seen that dynamic happen so many times. Almost... Every relationship I've been in, that person has left with a deeper understanding of every relationship I've been in with a white partner. They have left with a deeper understanding of my identity. I can say that I don't know, had they not been in a relationship with a person of color, that they would have actually gotten to that place. Maybe they would have. Maybe the world might have inspired them to eventually, right? Maybe Black Lives, the Black Lives Matter movement of, of 2020 may have mm-hmm. encouraged mm-hmm. people to change. And that's the situation that I put my, find myself in. I'm like, do I have to find ways to make white people love me in order to have these conversations with yeah, them? Yeah, that's a lot. That's a scary <laughs> right. place to be in. Do I, have to, do I have to get to a, do I have to work really hard to earn the trust of a white person to be able to tell them that their actions are racist? It's, it's tough. It's scary. What I would like to see is a world where we're all acknowledging this information and then 
can, can be accountable for ourselves in that way. Right. I also want to be accountable of the blinds of the blind spots that I have and the harm that I do to communities in which I am the majority or I am the, in the position of power. And maybe I want to do it more so because I'm used to the being on the, on the other mm-hmm. side of it. But I think it's important to remember even BIPOC for, especially for BIPOC to remember that just because we are, we fall victim to racism in a greater scheme does not mean that we cannot perpetuate racism or perpetuate, I'm sorry, perpetuate white supremacy or devalue identities that we don't mm-hmm. possess and harm them as well. Like we have power to harm them as well. So I th- what I will say is um, love helps, but doesn't conquer everything. I think love is an entry to have the tough conversations. I'm struck by that. And there's a part of me that gets really angry that people cannot see harm that they're causing so often until it directly affects someone that they love or themselves. Because we shouldn't require intimacy from people in order to believe that they deserve to exist. If that's anything we can take away from this, Rachel would never have had that discovery had she not been on this show. People wouldn't have searched to find those antebellum photos of her. But what is that doing? It's now showing anybody else who has those photos. And we know there's tons of people who do. It's causing them to examine themselves because it's entered mainstream, whether we wanted it to or not. And then that's the question right now. Intimacy shouldn't dictate whether or not you care about a person or care about a group of people's identity or like and how they navigate the world and whether or not you are harming them. It's making me think of like when Dick Cheney was like against gay marriage and then his daughter came out as gay and then he changed his mind. It's like, you know, my parents wouldn't have done the work to like learn how to use they, them pronouns fluently if it weren't that for their kid, you know, like, there's it it's so unfortunate that it requires that you love somebody in order to be able to in order to be willing to make the changes so that they so that someone will feel safe when they meet you like i had this therapist who couldn't use my pronouns and she said to me when i said to her she was like uh, you're just going to have to keep reminding me and i was like I mean, I said it in a few more words than this, but I essentially said, no, that's your job. You need to practice. And she sort of had this like shocking moment of like, holy shit, you're totally right. And then she said, I want to have more clients who use they, them. And I was like, you're saying that wrong. Like you are saying that's so wrong. What you're saying is that you want people who have different genders to feel safe with you as their therapist. That's what you're saying. But instead you're doing it in this like really objectifying way as though pronouns equal identity. And you're not willing to do the work before someone seeks you out. So they're never going to seek you out. The putting it on the person, putting it on the individual 
to make sure that you don't cross their boundary. To respect my identity. I mean, that's like, that's what Rachel would be asking of Matt. Rachel would be asking Matt to teach her how to respect who he is. Which is why he stepped right. aside. He said she needs to do work on her own. Because Matt is now recognizing that he has the power to give consent in this mm. scenario. He is not giving consent to being in that dynamic yeah. any longer. Or at least when he broke up with Rachel. Right. I don't know that they're together now or what or what what's happening currently. But in that scenario, it seems like as though Matt recognized the position he was in decided he wanted to remove himself. There could have been other factors as well. This is what just what we're seeing and we're discussing. I, I love that we ended on this on this point of intimacy should not be the, the reason why we, we do this. Because what it what it says is that every human, every human walking on this earth deserves to feel valued. And it is now on every human to make sure that they are actively doing the work to honor people, whether or not they have intimate relationships with them or not. Whether or not you know someone who is non-binary, you should be doing the work to understand how to treat them. It's now an ongoing, an ongoing process. You can't just trust that you'll pick it up as you go. You have to actually put in work to learn to understand, to hear narratives. People have it out there. Right. Not to ask the people around you who possess those identities to teach you, but to seek it out on your own. Because so many people have put that information out there in the world for you to use as a vehicle so that you don't have to, so that you don't have to have encounters like that with your therapist. I remember you telling me how heartbreaking that was for you because you liked your therapist. Mm -hmm. It's an ongoing, just like consent is an ongoing practice. I think being a good human being is an ongoing yeah. practice. Just like you don't get to just coast after a no, while. No, there's no end. Constantly. Yeah, you're never like, oh, I figured it out. One of my greatest role models is in her 70s, Olivia Brown. She's incredible. She's an educator and um, among many other things. And the reason why I look up to her so much is because even in her age, instead of being complicit, she is constantly still learning. I know there's a lot of people in, in that generation that don't accept pronouns, that refuse. And she is proactive and led an assembly on it at school about talking about identities and how to, how to honor. And I see that if that I aspire to be like her, I don't want at any age to stop and decide that my way is it. We could find out 50 years from now that everything we believed it was backwards or wrong, mm -hmm. right? And it's up to us to be willing to accept for so long, that generation fought for gender rights, right? Gender rights may look different 50 years from now. We're fighting for it too. And it could change. We have to adapt and change and honor the people who wish to be seen in that way. And I don't mean to be self-righteous or to be on a pedestal, stand on a soapbox here. I, I just passionately feel as though I've heard a lot of complacency around me about things like, well, I'm a good person. So like, I'm just going to just keep my head down and be kind to everyone. It's like, it's more than being kind. It's being actively, it's actively pursuing information to make sure you're not harming others. That's the next step. I think just being kind or polite is not enough anymore. And I don't know that it ever was. I don't think so. I think you can be, you could very nicely cause all kinds of harm, <laughs> you know? Yes. 
<laughs> intention isn't no. enough. No, I mean, it's so rare that someone intends to hurt someone's feelings. It doesn't, you know, your intentions don't change what impact they have or what you did had. Wow, Mia, I feel like we uncovered so much. I know. I feel like I learned a lot by having this conversation and being able to think these things out loud with you. I I was not expecting us to land where we landed. I'm really grateful for you. I love you. (laughs) I love you too. (laughs) I hope this sparked really interesting thoughts for others as well. Yeah, I hope so too. Thank you.